0: Our text this morning is Psalm 73, Psalm 73, this is a psalm which expresses a struggle that virtually every honest person has gone through, at least on some level, and that struggle is simply this, why do the wicked prosper? And that that struggle has a flip side. The flip side of it is, is the life of faith and self-denial, given its difficulties, really worth it? And, And the situation this text recounts, in that situation, the problem is so serious. It's so acute that the psalmist is in a state of personal crisis. And it would appear That he's close to losing his faith altogether. He's barely hanging on. We'll look at the text under the three headings that are there on the back sheet in your bulletin. Crisis, transition, and resolution. Crisis, transition, and resolution. First, the crisis. Psalm 73, verse 1 Verse 1 is not just a quaint heading. It's important for our understanding. Surely God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. This, This is the premise that the faithful start with in the Christian life. For the Bible teaches us in numerous places. That this is a moral universe. That God blesses the just. And that he's opposed to the unjust. This is basic to stability and order. It's basic to your sanity. And scripture tells us that if we walk in his ways, things will go well. And that if we stray from his path, things will go poorly. The Psalms... Proverbs, for example, are full of this type of instruction. The Bible is packed with this type of instruction. God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart, which doesn't mean spotless, but those basically loyal to the covenant. God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. This is the premise of walking with God in the covenant. But then, eventually, life has its say. And our faith runs into experiences which challenge it, sometimes very severely. We move out into life with all of its hurt and its frustrations and its doubts and its anguish and its injustice and darkness, and inequality, and it seems to mock this simple kind of Sunday school, God is good to Israel and punishes the unbelievers. It seems to mock what we have taught. The psalmist is in just that situation. The tradition he was taught, which he inherited from his father's, Right? The, the, the Torah, the, the, the law, the wisdom teaching, it all seems to be being overthrown by his two eyes, by his observations in life. You know that, old, that bumper sticker, some of you are a little older, I've probably seen it, my karma ran over my dogma. Right, That's what's happening to the psalmist in this text. The providences of God are smashing his little dogmas, his neat little "God blesses the righteous and God punishes the wicked. They're being smashed. And so after his ordeal is over, and he comes out of it, he writes this poem: "Surely good God is good to Israel." those who are pure in heart, by the end, by the time the poem is penned, it's no longer a true but naively held premise. It's a hard-won conclusion that he very nearly abandoned. I think we all understand this. We held or we confessed something about God a decade ago, but we hold it and confess it now with much more depth and realism and sobriety that we've been knocked around by the world a little bit, that we've lived a little more and suffered a little bit more. This is why a statement like this can sound trite on the lips of some and can resonate with an extraordinary depth on the lips of others. And so the psalmist asserts, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. It's actually an astonishing statement if you look at Israel's agonized history. But, after the assertion, you get this sharp contrast in verse 2. But, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I would nearly lost my foothold. He's disoriented. He's the, the image is he's sliding down the face of a mountain. And so his grip on the faith, on, on God, is, is loosened and, t- and tenuous, and it's white-knuckled. He's barely holding on. And the reason for this brutal honesty, you can see it in verse 3, For I envied the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is the root sin in this text, envy. Which is generally distinguished from jealousy in that jealousy is you want what the other person has. And in envy, you just don't want them to have it. Envy in that way is more insidious. The psalmist never says, I wish I could have the things that I see the wicked in this text having. He just doesn't want them to have it. And so he envies the prosperity of others. And this is an attack on. It's a rejection of God's sovereignty. His freedom to give or to withhold as he pleases. But we shouldn't be too quick to judge the psalmist. Hopefully we're not. Because this is the prosperity. Literally the word in the text is shalom. The well-being of the wicked. And that is not supposed to be. What are the wicked doing with shalom? At least according to the traditional teaching, which, as I said repeatedly, promises that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will not. You know why he's in this crisis? It's his sensitivity to scripture which has landed him in this crisis. I'm, in in fact, often amazed that we're not always in a crisis similar to this. You know, if we never have this problem, it's probably because we're not reading Scripture or observing the world closely enough. We either close our eyes to the text or we close our eyes to reality. But when your eyes are open both to the text and to the world, then you're thrust into this cauldron. Now, all of a sudden, you have to deal with the whole panoply of human disgrace and ambiguity. So he's disoriented. Who wouldn't be? And given the lengthy description that follows in in the psalm, he's seething with envy. The wicked he surveys, he says, have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They come back from the beach, tanned, rested. And we should note here that the psalmist's envy is almost certainly causing him to exaggerate and distort the actual situation. Envy blinds us to the actual shape and the reality of another person's life. Yes, the wicked are prospering. And yes, the psalmist sees it. But he says some ridiculous things like they have no struggles. They're all healthy and strong. Apparently, they live in some disease-free bubble where the tide of aging has been turned back. This is silly. But again, sometimes it seems that way. I had the unfortunate experience not a few days ago of listening to two middle-aged sports talk guys on ESPN radio in my car who were viewing the life of Mick Jagger this way because he happens to be fathering a child with a 29-year-old woman. A little unedifying detail, right? And then spoke of him as if somehow he had a, he's escaping all the deprivations of age and time. It's preposterous, but we do this kind of thing all the time. We view the wicked from a distance through these rose-colored glasses. In verse 5, he says, They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. From outside, their lives look spectacular. They're not burned out and frazzled and harried and stressed like the righteous are or always seem to be. He says that their pride is like a necklace. You know, pride... The wisdom tradition taught them that pride should lead to their downfall. They're wearing their pride proudly. They display it openly. Verse 12 says they're free of care, amassing wealth. They seem to to verify the position of Thrasymachus, character in Plato's Republic. He said that justice is the advantage of the stronger and that injustice, if it's on a large enough scale is stronger and freer and more masterly than justice the psalmist is looking at the world and thinking it appears maybe there is no justice that there is just what we can get away with by the use of force or other means maybe justice is whatever we say it is Maybe the law is whatever the judges say it is. That's the position of our elites. And in the midst of this, he speaks of their tongues, verse 9, making these monstrous, idolatrous boasts. These people don't lack confidence. They're not struggling to flesh out humility as a virtue. Right? They're doers, and so they have big plans. Verse 10 Is interesting. They they have sycophants. They have unthinking, fawning followers who turn to them and drink up whatever water they're pouring out. In short, the psalmist sees these prosperous, happy ones living in defiance of God. Verse 11, "How, how would God, they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? They appear to be beyond God's purview. And certainly beyond his judgment. So the psalmist, even for all his exaggerations, or his couple of, I think, exaggerations, his hyperbole, he feels the force of this. Their behavior and their prosperity indicate that God is an irrelevant factor in human affairs. Thus, the crisis. All right, so the transition out of this crisis begins in verse 13. Here we can see what the psalmist was thinking as he struggled with his observations. He echoes verse 1. Remember verse 1 said, surely God is good. Here it's surely in vain. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Verse 1 was God is good to the pure in heart. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. All of this discipline, this guarding of one's heart and one's tongue, this repenting and seeking forgiveness, this way of the cross, denying oneself, it's all so hard and so negative, and always saying no all the time, always swimming against the stream. It doesn't seem to be worthwhile. Verse 14 says, All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. Things are hard and following God is not making it easier. They, he had said, they have no struggles. My life is one long exasperating struggle. It's as if the psalmist is saying, Remind me again why fidelity is better than just doing what works. Because if you stack up the evidence, the idea that there's some God regulating and overseeing who prospers in the earth just seems at times ridiculous. I mean, have you noticed who's prospering in the earth? By the way, this is not simply a a complaint then, a critique of the modern ironic soul or some oh-so-edgy Hollywood screenwriter who's figured out that, oh, wicked people prosper, so maybe there's no God. The complaint goes back 3,000 years. Anyone with eyes could could make this complaint. Yet verse 15 says, there the psalmist realizes that if he had said what he was thinking out loud... If he had taken these private thoughts and this envy and if he had turned them into a public, you know, public cynicism, he would have betrayed God's children. Imagine walking around like that, thinking, I have all these thoughts, but if I ever said them in public, these people would cut my head off. Of course, he's said them in public by composing this psalm. But this is key. He's only written them down after he's worked his way through to a solution. In the middle, he didn't stop and say, you know what? Things look pretty bleak out there. So in in this state where he's grieved, verse 21 says he's embittered. He was senseless and ignorant like a brute before God. That's what envy, comparing our condition to others and trying to account for all the anomalies in the world, that's what it'll do to us. It turns you into a beast. There there are real problems in observing the world. There are real challenges. We don't have to make these things up. But if we don't handle them correctly, they turn us into senseless, ignorant brutes. The text says, and and here you can, if if possible, you can ratchet up the intensity. The text says he struggled mightily to understand all this. This is not a shallow guy who just flits along on the surfaces of life. He sees stuff and he asks questions. Hard questions and repeated questions. And if he doesn't get answers, he loses sleep at night. That's the way the psalmist is wired. I struggled mightily to understand all this? It's important to ask the question. I was asked just this week by a sensitive soul about a situation they saw on the news where a woman threw her five-month-old child out the window to his death. The person was distressed by this. And let me tell you, The answers are not easy. (laughs) That's a person seeing the world, reading the Bible, seeing the world, reading the Bible, and asking some questions. But he's troubled, largely because he's trying to do the impossible here. He's looking at the world He sees the anomalies, and then he's trying to rationally explain them. He's trying to interpret providence. And providence is generally inscrutable. I wrote a whole book on this, uh, the book on Ecclesiastes, where I spent a lot of time on this. But providence itself is opaque. It's not amenable to simplistic theories. And you're interpreting events and situations and and trying to figure out just what God is or isn't doing, and that's a fool's errand. It's true, Christians do it all the time. It seems like we're wired to do it, we can't help ourselves, but it's almost always folly. For one thing, it fails to realize just how little about ourselves... Or others or the situations in life that we encounter, just how little we actually know. We don't know what's going on, right? Often this goes something like this. A happened, and then B happened, and when B happened, I really wanted C to happen, but D happened, so C couldn't happen. Therefore, God was saying this to me. Or therefore, God was doing something like this. Or this must mean the Lord was meant this, right? You have four pieces of data out of an infinite array of data. And you're declaring what God is doing. Now this happens all the time. I, for one, don't believe any of it. My advice is spend less time trying to read some secretly encoded divine message in the situations of your life. And spend more time reading Holy Scripture. Give up trying to read providence because it's a a glorious liberation. Because everything, absolutely everything we need to know is in the text of Holy Scripture. What is God doing in the complex situation of your life? He's doing what he's always done with every Christian everywhere, forever. He's trying to conform you into the image of Christ. Christ. But you don't have to figure out what the whole situation means and what what this might lead to that or could God be saying this. Here's what God is saying. Be conformed to the image of Christ. He's probably trying to teach you patience, humility, purity. He's always doing the same thing so we don't have to figure out what the events might mean in some grand cosmic scheme of things. He wants to conform you to Christ. He does not want to allow you to unlock the mysteries of providence. And the psalmist is racking his brain Trying to read the world. But all he does is he ends up deeply troubled. The world is bent, and you're not going to be able to read it straight. And that brings us to the center of the poem. It's verse 17. This is the key to the transition. He was deeply troubled until he entered the sanctuary of God, then he understood their final destiny. Reason could not break the deadlock or the the envy. Public worship did that. He entered the sanctuary, and everything looks different now. So everything shifts. It's no longer the psalmist thinking about life horizontally. I and they. I and they. It's now vertical. I and thou the Psalmist and God we see through God to the world not from the world through the world to God this is the key to seeing we see through God to the world and so the sanctuary this place is the place where you're to be recalibrated or reoriented where we're reminded and we relearn that things are not always what they appear And that present realities are not final realities. The light of the coming glory, which easily fades from our view, is rekindled in the sanctuary. Worship orients us to the end because this is the day of resurrection. This is the foretaste of the coming kingdom. That's why he says, when I came into the sanctuary, I understood their end. And that takes us to the third point, the resolution. At this point, finally, God becomes an actor in the poem. Verse 18. Now remember, verse 1, surely God is good. Verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Now in verse 18, it's surely you place them on slippery ground. There's a certain unreality about this apparent prosperity. They're on slippery ground. They'll be swept away like a dream, like a fantasy, the text says. And so the weightiness, the weightiness of the reality of God himself encountered in the sanctuary, that's what makes the apparent prosperity of the wicked vanish. And so God himself enables the psalmist to dismiss this horrible awful alternative he, he was considering. Right? The, the alternative was that the idea of discipleship is just not worth it. Worship in the sanctuary liberates you from being senseless, brute beasts, and it moves us to being grateful and teachable children. In verse uh, 23, there's this wonderful affirmation, he says, you know, e- even Even when he was a brute beast, he says, yet I am always with you. Certainly not by his own moral resolve or fidelity. Even though he was a beast and senseless and ignorant, yet I'm always with you. God had been holding him by his right hand. This is very precious. God holds us in our honest doubts. He holds us down to the bottom of them and into the light. Right? He holds us in our disorientation. He doesn't, God is not afraid of any of these questions the psalmist is asking. And so we don't have to have pious glosses about the world. We can confront the ambiguities and the difficulties and the struggles and lay them out there because even when we're bestial about it, God is holding on to us and holding our hands. He says, my foot almost slipped, but God's grasp of him didn't slip. It's like a a, a parent walking a three-year-old across a busy street. Sure, they're holding your hand, but it's your grip on them that counts. And that's how God's grip on you is. And so, this communion with God is not going to fully answer the questions, but it is going to enable you to live with them. And that's important. The text says God guides him with counsel and afterwards receives him into glory. This promise of glory, eschatological glory, the other side of the the judgment of the wicked, of them vanishing like a fantasy, this is crucial in enabling us to read the, the real world. If there is no coming glory, then sure, the psalmist is probably right when he was envious. But this enables us to forsake envy and to endure. This is when we will see finally and fully God's goodness to the pure in heart. This is when we will see in glory that it is not vain. Look, you do not always get this now. You will not always see this now. It is the fact that God receives us to glory that makes it clear that it is not vain for us to keep our hearts pure. As Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, hands clasped by God, be taken into glory and see his face. And so things start to fade from the psalmist's view. God starts to get bigger the prosperity of the, and of the wicked seems to be more slippery and thin. And he says, he ends up saying, whom have I in heaven but you? And, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Now, this is, this is not some kind of despising of earthly goods in society. But it is an affirmation that God alone is his chief end, his delight, his joy, his vision, his all-sufficient portion. You know, in envy, you think you don't have the portion of goods that you should have. They have too much, their portion is too big, my portion is too small. The way through is to say, God is my portion. Everything else is enjoyed in and with and through this God. Verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail. In fact, they they shall, they did fail, the psalmist, did they not? God alone is the strength of his heart, he says. You're not even able to uphold your own heart. God is his portion and his inheritance forever. So something magnificent has happened in the middle of the crisis. This is why crisis like this or crises like this are valuable. This is why we don't shy away from them. The psalmist has rediscovered the all-sufficient, delightful God who is his stay and his destiny. And we forget this all the time. And so in verse 27 and 28, he echoes the beginning of the Psalm. And he has here what some have called a second knowing. A second knowing. It's a it's a new look at the situation after meeting God in the sanctuary. You've probably experienced this, all of us probably had on, on perhaps on a smaller scale, right? Life looks a little different on the way out of this building than it does on the way in. That's called a second knowing. That's what the sanctuary is here for, among other things. And so, he looks at the situation. The wicked who are far from God will perish, he says. In in verse 2 it was, but as for me, my foot had almost slipped. Here it's, but as for me, it's good to be near God. We could put it this way. What he forgot What he forgot about the prosperous wicked is that they were far from the glorious fullness of the all-glorious God, and that is ultimate misery. That's a little fact about looking at situations in life that, if you exclude it, is going to distort the situation. I've often said here before that, that I have no problem with situation ethics as long as you understand God is the determinative thing about the situation. And so we're looking at situations and we just, it's weird, right? We shouldn't do this, but we do it. Now the psalmist realizes, oh, they're far from God. And what he forgot about his own situation was that his good was being near to God. His ultimate shalom is well-being. And so it turns out that God is good to Israel means ultimately God is the goodness that he shows to Israel. And now when he asserts it, it's not a naive nicety, but it's a battle-tested truth. It's of infinite worth. This is what the Lord desires for you, for us, if we're thrust into darkness or confusion or doubt or despair. We wrestle through these things until these truths, which at one time at best seem trite. At worst, they can seem deceptive. They did to the psalmist. On the other side, they shine forth in a kind of radiant fullness. The words of the Lord, Psalm 12 says, are pure words. They're like silver refined in a furnace purified seven times. They're not trite. They will hold up in the fires of doubt and darkness. They give proof through the night, if you will. Finally, it's in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, himself an innocent sufferer, himself perplexed at the Father's dark providences himself asking the ultimate question of perplexity, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But himself held, taken up in glory. It's in and through him, in the teeth of all opposition, internal to us or external to us, that we declare, surely, 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 God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart, amen.